So this morning we are in 1 Peter. And I want us to be encouraged by Peter's opening to this letter. It's just a few verses, but man, it is completely God-saturated with life-giving words. And the author here is Peter, one of those inner three around Jesus during his earthly ministry. He was a fisherman. He was married. He was probably the oldest disciple of Jesus. He left everything to follow Christ. He's the one in the Gospels who gets out of the boat and tried to walk on the water towards Jesus and succeeded for a while, and then he failed. He's the one who told Jesus, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. His life and ministry are a powerful picture of failure and restoration. He's the one who said to Jesus, I will never leave you. These others, they might, but I'm never going to bail on you. And then just a few hours later, denied Jesus three different times. And then a few days later, he heard the sweetest restoration from the very man that he denied knowing, who was now raised from the dead and eating breakfast with him on a beach with his friends. And then some 50 days after that, Peter stands up full now of the Holy Spirit, and he preaches fearlessly, and 3,000 people come to know God that day. Then later on, he risks life and limb and goes to prison. He heals people like the man at the gate. He raises Tabitha from the dead. He travels around. He dies a martyr in Rome. That's the Peter here who writes this letter. And I remind us of all these things because the men who are inspired by the Spirit to write these letters and these books matter. And it's a, it's a tragedy when we try and make the, the Scriptures sterile or cold because the Spirit sovereignly used these men's personalities and experiences to write God's book. Peter loved Jesus and was loved by him. He was sanctified. He was changed. He was confronted and molded and shaped over time by the Spirit, just like us. So let's look at verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those chosen, living as exiles, dispersed abroad in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. So Peter is writing to primarily two groups. Uh, the Jews who did not live in their homeland were called the exiles who were dispersed. So he is writing to them, but he's not primarily writing to them because of the language used in the rest of his letter. He's talking about Christians, Christians who are exiled in this world. The first reminder from this opening passage is that Christians are aliens in the truest sense. An alien is a person living in a place that's not home, right? Different language, different values, different dress even, maybe. Different rules, different authority. The atmosphere is different. You're just not quite at home. That's an alien or an exile, and that is us. That's who Peter is writing to. So if you're here this morning 
and you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, you are an alien in America. Your first citizenship is in heaven. Your second citizenship is America, and the gap of priority between the two is infinite. And the Lord needs to help us if we've lost that feeling. Because if we have, that means we've started to love the things of this world instead of loving the people of this world. Because if we love the things of this world, we grow to hate the people in this world. Because you won't hesitate to use people to get wealth and possessions and favor in the eyes of men. But if we love the people of this world, then we must tell them about their king, Christ. And the more we tell them about Christ, and the more committed we are to living like he is the ruling and reigning king, the more we begin to feel like aliens. And I opened this morning with the fact that I was excited about how encouraging this passage is. You're probably thinking, wow, this guy is in the wrong passage. No, the encouraging part comes when we ponder and we look at our inheritance the inheritance waiting for us. But first, we have to reflect on the fact that we are exiles. So what does it mean to be an exile? John Piper is going to help us think through the implications of this specifically as Americans. This is very helpful. He says, American culture does not belong to Christians, neither in reality nor in biblical theology. It never has. The present tailspin towards Sodom is not a fall from Christian ownership. 1 John 5, 19 says, the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. It has since the fall, and it will until Christ comes in triumph. God's rightful ownership is manifested in due time. The exiles groan with all of creation, as we see in Romans 8. We are waiting for Jesus' return. Then he goes on, he says, however, Christian exiles are not to be passive. We don't smirk at the misery of immoral culture. We weep. We should train ourselves to. Being exiles does not mean being cynical. It doesn't mean that we're indifferent or uninvolved with this world. The salt of the earth does not mock rotting meat. Where it can, it saves and it seasons, and where it can't, it weeps. The light of the world doesn't withdraw, saying good riddance to the darkness. It labors to illuminate. Being Christian exiles in American culture does not end our influence, but it does take the swagger out of it. We don't get cranky that our country has been taken away. We don't whine about the triumphs of evil. This is not new. This is the way it's always been. Antioch, Corinth, Athens, Rome. The empire wasn't just degenerate, it was deadly. And for the first three centuries, you saw Christ-exalted, Christ-exalting followers pay with their blood when they worshipped him. Many still do, and many more will. And he closes with this. 
It's a time for influence, but not with huffing and puffing as if to reclaim our lost laws. Rather, with tears, persuasion, and perseverance, knowing that the follies of racism, the exploitation of the poor, the degauding of education, the horror of abortion, the collapse of the family and heterosexual marriage are the tragic death tremors of joy, not the victory of the right or the left. What I'm saying this morning is the greatness of Christian exiles is not success, but service. Are we faithful? Are we as the salt of the earth ready to stand in the gap and help save and season when we can? Are we declared by Christ the light on the city on top of a hill? Are we ready to go into the darkness and not dominate it, but illuminate it? Christ will dominate all of his enemies. We don't have to. He will put all things under his feet, and one day our feet, we don't have to. We're called to serve this world. So we're not called to be cynical, and we're certainly not called to be, as Piper says, whiny. Let's serve with joy using the gifts that God has given to us. This falling in love with the world even happened in Scripture to some that were with the disciples. In the letters to, uh, in Colossians and Philemon, Paul talks about Demas, who's a fellow worker with him. But then in his very last letter in 2 Timothy, he wrote these terrible words. He said, Demas, having loved this present world, has deserted me and gone to Thessalonica. This is a, a terrible tragedy when a believer throws away faith and hope in the future world and lives for this present world. So we have to ask, how do we remain good and faithful exiles? How do we do this practically? Peter answers this later on in this very letter, 1 Peter 4. It's on the screen, 1 Peter 4, 7 through 10. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and sober-minded for prayer. Above all, maintain constant love for one another, since love covers a multitude of sins. Be hospitable to one another without complaining. Just as each one has received a gift, use it to serve others as good stewards of the varied grace of God. So Peter opens this letter calling us chosen exiles. And then later in the letter, he tells us exactly how we are to maintain our identity. The first one is to pray and be connected to reality. Prayer keeps you sober from the addictive, inebriating power of worldliness. Prayer keeps you connected to the way things actually are, gives you an eternal perspective, and brings you nearer to the one who has no beginning and no end. That's the one you need to get to know and grow in love for, God the Father. Two, love fervently. Peter specifically here is talking about the love that you have for your brothers and sisters in Christ. That means we have to fan the flame of love intentionally. Your community group, your D group, the relationships that grow out of being a part of this body. Love does not come fervent, become fervent 
because you have distance and you don't spend time together. The only way for love to grow is to spend time together. The church is the bride of Christ. So if you love Jesus, you will love her. If you're married, you know that one of the most important ways to keep love going in your marriage is regular time spent together. It's no different than with your brothers and sisters in Christ, which leads us to the third one. Open your home cheerfully. Not an interesting one that Peter threw out. Open your home cheerfully. Be hospitable. Aliens in a foreign land need to get together in each other's homes. It's crucial to remind ourselves of our shared identity in Christ. So if you're single or married, if you're retired, if you're very busy with your jobs or you know one job or multiple jobs, it's crucial fellowship for Christians. Practically, just don't live in a museum of your stuff. That's the best way to be hospitable. Don't, don't create a shrine to you and your children that no one can step foot in unless they take their shoes off. That's a Buddhist temple. That's not a Christian home. So be hospitable. Have people over. Enjoy fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ. We preach so many times on relationships, and our subtitle always is from Paul Tripp, Relationships, a mess worth making. I'm not saying it's going to be easy or simple, but it's worth it because what unites you and I in Jesus is greater than any other affinity on this planet. No other interest, no other background, no other linguistic uh, anything. Nothing unites us like Christ unites us. So we need to be together in fellowship. And lastly, serve. That's what Peter tells us. Let the grace of God flow through your gifts to others. Every single one of you in this room who's born again have special gifts given to you by the Spirit. And you're called to serve this body with those gifts. So if you haven't been paying attention, if you buy your home decorations at Target and you have an eat, pray, love sign, all you have to do is add serve to it. <laughs> and you're obeying 1 Peter 4. Obviously, you have to pray to the God of the Bible. That's a very important uh, asterisk. I should add to that. But if you have that terrible artwork up in your house, hopefully you're hospitable and you need to stick serve up and we're good to go. Invite me over. Take a picture. Let's look at verse 2 and verse 5. Peter says, We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient and to be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus Christ. In verse 5, You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. So looking at verse 2, did you notice anything about God so plainly? God the Father, God the Spirit, and God the Son. You are elect by the work of the Trinity, chosen by the work of the Trinity. The Father and the Son and the Spirit are at work in your life. This should be such an encouragement to us. We do have to fight to obey, to be part of this alien community. The first part of the letter, we have to fight to obey. We have to do those things. We have to train ourselves in godliness. But we have done nothing to earn our salvation or keep our salvation. This is the good news. 
that while we were dead and lost and rebellious in every way, the Father set his covenant love on us. So before the beginning of time, he saw us and made a way to accomplish the redemption of our souls. And then at the perfect time in history, the Son, the second person of the Trinity, stepped into history and took on flesh to die the kind of death that you and I deserve, all the while obeying every iota of the law, something that we could never do. And then he willfully died in our place. And when he rose again, and he put sin and Satan and death under his feet, then he sent his Spirit the spirit of the living God to indwell his people, giving them good gifts, repaired consciences, and resurrection power. We had nothing to do with any of that. We are the beneficiary of his great mercy. Not a drop of it we earned. We never performed to receive it. We're not owed it. It's all because of his infinite compassion and mercy. So you may be thinking, that's great. I understand justification and when I was born again. And what about right now? What about the temptations, the pressures, the stresses, the weariness, the frustration, the suffering, confusion, fears, and traps that I face every day? Does God do anything about that? Did he just send his son to die, raise him up from the dead for our eternal life, cause us to be born again, and then step back to see if we'll make it to heaven? Peter is not about to let that question go unanswered or even implicit. He makes the answer explicit, clear, and powerful in verse 5. Look at what he says. You, you chosen exile, are being, and this word, guarded, kept, protected, held, by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. What does that mean? Salvation is initiated by God. It's completed by God and it's kept by God. What Peter is doing here is not telling us what to do. He's telling us what to enjoy. John 1, 12 and 13 says this, but to all who did receive Jesus, he gave them the right to be children of God. To those who believe in his name, who were born, not of natural descent or of the will of the flesh or of the will of man, but of the will of God. So at this moment in the text, I'm not telling you or compelling you what to do. I'm telling you what to enjoy. And Peter knows firsthand what this means because he blew it. He denied Jesus three times after pledging his own life to Christ. He said to Jesus, I will die with you. And then he denied him three times. But who restored Peter? Who picked Peter up after feeling like a permanent failure? Who kept Peter? Who continued to pray for Peter? Who restored Peter? Jesus. So if you're here this morning and you belong to Christ, you've been born again by the power of the Spirit, you confess Jesus, you see fruit in your life, and you blew it 
this week. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. You can't sin your way out of your Father's hands. Satan can't pull you out of the Father's hands. No demonic affliction can separate you from your risen Savior. You can't be poor enough or sick enough or messed up enough that Jesus will leave you. Look at verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of his great mercy. That's it. Every single sheep the Father gave the Son will be kept until the end. All of us. All of us. So enjoy that. And rest in that. And believe that. What does that do when you really believe that? That causes your repentance time to cut down to almost nothing. Because when you sin and need to repent, you know that the Father still has you and that Jesus will still forgive you. So why wait? Why delay? Why let sin wreak havoc in your life? Why keep unconfessed sin weighing down on your soul? If you really believe that all that the Father sent to Jesus, Jesus keeps, then confess it. He will forgive you and restore you and make you new and set you on a path to even better and higher and greater things in him. He'll give you new gifts. You'll experience new levels of sanctification. Why wait? Why keep the sin bearing down on your soul? Confess it because he is just and righteous to forgive you always. That's what it does when you really believe it. That's what happens. And holy people are happy people. A lot of times in popular culture, holiness is equated with some kind of weird uh, Puritan thing. And I even hate using that word because the Puritans absolutely were joyful, fun people. Who knows how in secular Westernism, the word Puritan came to be known as a bunch of sticks in the mud. They were not. They each had 25,000 children, owned multiple farms, you know, brewed beer. They were great people. They had a lot of fun. I don't know how they get this, how this got attached to them. But holy people are happy people. People who walk in the light of God are happy in the sense of they have joy that can't be stolen by circumstances. That's what I mean by happy. Not in the pop culture term, but the real deep biblical meaning of happy. Because they believe that no matter what happens, nothing can actually separate them from the love of Christ. And they're going to live their life in light of that. So if you're watching here this morning or you're here and you're not a Christian, God is calling you to be accepted into this alien family. He is so clearly this morning calling you to renounce your citizenship from this dying and sinful world and be embraced by his heavenly family. If you confess your sins and you turn from them and you embrace Jesus as an all-sufficient Savior, he is good and will save you. And then he'll give you his spirit and you can joyfully obey him as you await with us his return in glory. And that's what we're going to talk about next, our inheritance in heaven. Let's go to verse 4. Look at it with me. 
So we're chosen exiles. We're saved completely by mercy and compassion. And we're saved into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for us. I want to linger over a word in this passage, inheritance. Children get their father's inheritance. So those born again by the power of God have an inheritance from God. So just in these few verses, we've tracked born-again Christians from death to an inheritance. Peter is plainly saying, you are exiles. And he, he, he expounds later what it looks like to quit living like citizens of a dying world. You have an inheritance in heaven, exiles. It's a better country. It's a better king. So, so what is this inheritance that's waiting for you and I in heaven? Well, first, we have to get our minds off of what a good earthly inheritance is. We can't let this be spoiled by the things that we perceive when we hear the word inheritance. It's not money or vacation homes, large retirement accounts. This inheritance is not the ability to manipulate faith, to become prosperous in all areas of life. This world is filled with false teachers who say that illness and pain and failure are a result of a lack of faith. And you have to claim God's promises into existence. It's a garbage nonsense from hell. This inheritance is not earthly. It's so much better. Believers, remember this. Since I will inherit the whole world, I don't need any of it right now. Matthew 5, 5 says this about God's people. God blesses those who are humble, who made us humble, Christ. Christ grows humility in us, makes us truly humble before his throne. The Beatitudes are describing the people of heaven. What do the people who have been born again look like, act like, grow in? So this is a Beatitude. God blesses those who are humble, for they will inherit the whole world earth. What pain do we spare ourselves if we actually believe this and live our lives like this? Since we will inherit the whole world, we don't need any of it now. Literally, I get some of it. You get some of it because our God is a gracious God and provides for our needs. But what a tragedy it is when we fall in love with the world and Jesus says this is a world that's going to perish. Many of us here have heard these kinds of scriptures our whole lives, and you're already thinking about, oh, yes, I know, I need to be in the world and not of the world. I, I get that. That's been drilled into me. I've heard these scriptures so many times. But we have to ask ourselves, what do our Monday through Saturdays actually look like? We can say we're in the world but not of the world, but can anyone tell any difference? David Platt has one way to differentiate. He says, so what's the difference between someone who willfully indulges in sexual pleasures while ignoring the Bible on moral purity and someone who willfully indulges in the selfish pursuit of more and more material possessions while ignoring the Bible on caring for the poor? I'd also add, while ignoring the Bible on loving the world. The difference is that one involves a social taboo in the church 
and the other involves the social norm in the church. This is another reminder of what Peter taught us earlier in the text. We have to stop living like we are the citizens of this dying world. We have to remember where our forever home is, the new heavens and the new earth that Jesus is going to give us. That's where our true citizenship lies. The kingdom of God is not an earthly kingdom. It's an eternal kingdom. So it's okay if we desire to be rich in that way. I get an inheritance from my Father in heaven. It's imperishable. It will never fade. It can't go away. It can't rot or get old. It's undefiled. It's complete. It's perfect. It's going to bring us endless, ever-increasing joy. It'll never get boring. Think about the things of this world. The most beautiful arrangement of flowers lasts, what, a week or two. Then it gets ugly, and it starts to stink, and has to be thrown away. Everything is fleeting. The most attractive people get old. The coolest technology is useless in 10 years. No one is still excited about their first-generation iPhone from 2007. That would be sad, mainly because they can't connect to any cell network anymore because technology's changed. But Peter's saying in this text, the newness of this inheritance will never fade. It will always be the best, and it will always bring us joy. So what is it? Paul says in Romans 8.18, one more thing about it. He says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us, our inheritance. Paul wants us to share in his tremendous hope. Peter wants us to share in his tremendous hope. The inheritance on the way to us is so great that it makes every trouble in life seem small by comparison. Do you realize the magnitude of that statement? Because Paul wasn't talking about minor annoyances that we obsess over in the wealthy Western world. He wasn't talking about lots of traffic or endless road construction or spotty internet access. That's not what he's talking about. Peter and Paul and the Spirit are saying to me and to you this morning, when your child dies, remember the inheritance coming from your Father in heaven. When you lose your house, when your marriage ends, when your friend gets cancer or commits suicide, when your wayward child never returns home, when your own brain drives you to the point of madness, when you feel betrayed or embarrassed or cast out, remember the inheritance coming from your Father in heaven. How can I make this bold of a claim? Well, because the first aspect of this inheritance is God himself. He is our inheritance. The great hope of the Christian church is described in Revelation 21.3. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. 
This was the capstone hope of the Old Testament saints, even though they had a strong uh, want for a land of their own. They said, Psalm 73, whom have I in heaven but you? And beside you I desire nothing on the earth. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. This is our great inheritance. One aspect of it, the Lord himself. Piper says, if God is not precious to you, what a stranger you are to your own inheritance. Secondly, our inheritance is the entire world and all of creation. Romans 4.13, the promise to Abraham, to his descendants, that he would be the heir of the world was not through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. In other words, if you belong to the faith that Abraham claimed in the risen Messiah who would justify his people, the inheritance, Paul says, that's coming to you is the whole world. If you're an heir of God, then you will inherit what is God's, and God owns everything. Psalm 24:1, the earth is the Lord's, and all it contains, the world and all those who dwell in it. You're going to inherit the earth and everything in it. So practically, what does that mean? Well, at the very least, it means this. Everything will exist to serve your happiness. And idolatry is no more. Everything will exist to serve our happiness in God. Scriptures say that God doesn't merely defeat our enemies, but he actually turns them into servants. So all things... Life and death, all things are ours and will serve our everlasting joy. Third, redeemed and glorified bodies. This is hugely important. The doctrine of heaven is so crucial to being a biblical Christian because all of society that was so warped by the spiritual blah of the enlightenment has created heaven where cherub babies float and play harps and we're all disembodied spirits. It's antithetical to what Jesus teaches about heaven in the New Testament. Heaven, the new heavens and the new earth and the New Testament are real and physical and tangible forever which means that you and I will be like Jesus is right now, glorified and real and tangible forever. No disembodied white robes and boring choral music. That's not heaven. We have to understand what does God actually tell us that's waiting for us. What are these new heavens and this new earth? And a huge part of this is our bodies will be like Christ's body. If we are going to enjoy all the things that the entire universe has to offer and not be idolatrous, then we need new bodies that are capable of joys that we cannot even imagine and a satisfaction in God and being near to him that we cannot even comprehend. That's why there's no idolatry in heaven, because we have bodies that are like Christ. We're with him 
always, in every moment, perfectly. Romans 8, Paul talks about how the creation is groaning. And we, those who have the first fruits of the resurrection, meaning we've been born again by God's power, we groan inwardly and we await our glorified and resurrected bodies. That's what we're in the midst of right now. So our inheritance includes at least these things, the world and everything that is in it. God himself as our final and ultimate portion and reward. And then new glorified bodies that can enjoy more fully and deeply God and all his gifts without a hint of idolatry. I think so many of us are bored in our Christian life because we don't understand the full biblical teaching on salvation. We haven't received the full experience of our inheritance yet. Do you have that longing in you? I think some of us are bored because we don't realize that the Christian life we're called to right now at this moment is a life of growth, ever-increasing nearness to God, and new gifts from the Spirit. A never-ending adventure, like Pastor Rick likes to call it all the time. But we're not living like aliens. We live like citizens of this world so often, dying as it is dying. And some of us don't long for heaven because we've just given up and we're satisfied enough with the fleeting things that the world has to offer. Let's not do this. Let's long for heaven together. And if you're ever worried you're going to grow bored or that things will lose their luster or that the whole novelty will wear off like everything does here in this existence, I'm going to let a paraphrase from Jonathan Edwards correct us. He says this, Because God is infinite, he can be infinitely enjoyed. Christ is in no way concerned about running out of ways to keep up with your ever-increasing ability to enjoy him. His character is endlessly deep, unsearchable, and inexhaustible. Imagine the scope of the entire universe. Obviously, this was added later. Jonathan Edwards, 1700s. <laughs> Trillions of shining stars burning brighter than the sun. Magnificent constellations. Billions of spinning galaxies. All magnificent and vast, colorful and mysterious. Yet they are finite. Brilliant, though, as they are. And we've seen recent pictures, right? of the actual width and depth of just a slice of the universe that God has created. Brilliant though as they are, they fall utterly short in comparison to the breadth, length, height, and depth of the love of Christ. His love and grace and kindness and wisdom and power and mercy each Stand as never-ending infinite universes for all of your affections to delight in. The Old Testament saints got this. Isaiah said this, What no eye has seen, what no ear 
has heard and what no human mind has conceived, the things that God has prepared for those who love him. In heaven, your capacity and my capacity for joy will never cease to grow. And if I'm honest with you, that is hard to wrap my head around because like many of you, I am a trained cynic. This world has so formed my pessimism that even in my new birth, I have to fight like many of you to kill the indwelling cynicism in my heart. And so in my own meditation on Scripture these last few days, thinking about our inheritance and thinking about heaven, a couple things stood out to me, and God used it to further heal my cynical heart. The first one is this. When Jesus returns for us or I die before that, I will be completely free from sin. My own heart and my own emotions will never betray me again. My sinful desires and thoughts can never hurt another person again. I will never have to second guess a motive or a deed done by a brother or sister in Christ in glory. Jesus will fully and finally make me like him. I want that. I can wrap my head and my heart around that. And so as I meditated on that, another small, sinful, and cynical part of me was redeemed and restored by God. And the second thing that spoke to me as I considered how can I long for heaven? How can I grow in this? Not only will we be free from sin internally, which is what I just described, we'll also be fully and finally free from all of sin's external consequences. That means no more bombs that shred mothers in outdoor marketplaces. No more tsunamis or earthquakes or violent tornadoes that level towns and kill entire families. That means no more plagues, no more viruses, no more disease, no more miscarriage, no more childhood cancer, no more relational strain, no more broken relationships, no more terrorism, no more tragic accidents. That I can wrap my head around this. I long for that. I was blessed to serve uh, a lot of kids at a boarding school as their youth pastor for about six years. And one man came to us who was even more cynical than I was at his age. And I got to get a front row seat in God's redeeming work in his life. I saw his questions as a young man about the faith get answered by the Spirit. I saw him receive a new heart that was softened to Jesus, and I saw him humbly bow before the Lord in worship. And he graduated, went off to college, and came back to visit my family several times during his freshman year and shared about all the different ways he was volunteering and he was enjoying his Bible classes and he was making new friends. 
And back then, I helped many of my kids fill out their paperwork. So many of them were not from the United States and were ESL. And I, I listed myself often as their uh, emergency contact. And I got a call from the Dallas Police Department the morning of my birthday that year, and they shared with me that he had passed away in a car accident, that the driver was going too fast and the car flipped and no one in the vehicle survived. It was just a terrible accident. For a very, very young pastor, that was a massive reminder to me that God's providence is often mysterious to his children. that life is very short and that the consequences of the fall are real every single day. And I've been with some of you as you walk through pain and suffering and sin and long for heaven together with me. So another specific moment that is part of my inheritance in Jesus, our inheritance as God's children, is this. Revelation 21.4, Jesus will wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. That's something I can wrap my head and my heart around that I can long for and hope in And that moment does, as Paul said, make the trials and sufferings of this world seem very small. That's the hope that we have to endure in Christ together as chosen exiles continuing to gather, to worship, to praise, because Jesus is already the victorious King. Not everyone has been told that yet, but one day everyone will know and every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue will confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. So can we continue to long for heaven together Continue to live as exiles, serving each other, knowing that we are part of a family that is more united than anything we've ever experienced in biological family or affinity. That this church, the people you've been called to be a part of, are your brothers and sisters, not just right now, but forever. Let's cling to that hope and long for heaven together. Let's pray. Father, we need you. Spirit, we need you to take our eyes in these moments off of the temporary things that we're experiencing. And I ask you, Spirit, to raise our heads to see Jesus. Help us to know the depths of his love and and also know that in glory we will never find the bottom, the floor of the depths of his love for his people. 
that he is endless and unsearchable and life-giving forever. Father, I confess, we confess that we are not heavenly-minded as we should be. But Spirit, you have promised to grow us and we believe that you can and will. So please do that to the glory and honor of God the Father. Help us to long for your return and our endless eternal life with you without sin, without death, without suffering, in glory to praise you forever. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain. For you, Jesus, purchased the people from every tribe and tongue and nation. And you have made us forever permanent priests to our God. Help us to see that clearer this morning and to be a little less worldly and a little more focused on our inheritance that is going to be fully revealed in Christ. We ask these things in his precious, majestic, beautiful name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.